Asia Pacific currents. News and labour issues from the Asia Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at nine o'clock on Community Radio 3CR. All groups of the world should unite to fight this greedy capitalist. Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links. Good morning and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents this Saturday the 7th of October. You're here on Community Radio 3CR. I'm Giselle Hanna and I'm taking you through to 9.30 this morning. Of course, Asia Pacific Currents is brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on the web or the w's.aawl.org.au. We're on Facebook and Twitter so you can find us on those social media platforms And you can also email us at aawl at aawl.org.au. Coming up in the second part of the program today, um, I interviewed Mahi Ramakrishnan. She's a Malaysian progressive documentary filmmaker uh, and she's covered the struggle of the Rohingya and the genocide of the Rohingya for many, many years. She's made three documentaries about it, and I had an opportunity to speak with her about the current crisis and ways forward, if any. Uh, so that is a second. what's coming up in the second part of the show. Of course, a big thank you to Annie McLaughlin for another strong and powerful and interesting Solidarity Breakfast program. And of course, you'll be back next Saturday from 7.30 with more news and current affairs from a worker's perspective. But coming up now, or rather time now, for news from around the region, we're going to kick off in Australia and the uh, massive, um, well, the dispute at ice cream um, company Streets, which is owned by Unilever. Around 150 workers in the Australian city of Sydney have been in a brutal struggle from last August against their against Streets Ice Cream, a subsidiary of the global giant Unilever, over a new enterprise agreement. The company wants to reduce workers' wages by over 40%, as well as cuts to overtime and redundancy payments. Workers have made a video on the effects that such savage cuts would have on them and their families. The company is now trying to silence workers by threatening them with dismissal if they comment publicly on any aspects of the dispute. While a boycott of Streets Ice Cream has been proposed, coordinated industrial actions at other Unilever sites (coughs) around the world would be much more effective in maximising workers' power. And many listeners will remember that Unilever, that massive international food company, which uh, also dabbles in chemicals as well, um, is is vehemently anti-union. They were responsible for um, the uh, Union Carbide um, factory, the thermometer factory in uh, in India that poisoned not just the workers but the rivers and the streams in the surrounding areas in Bhopal um, and contaminated and affected young children as well. Of course, Unilever was also the company that went after the um, Pakistani workers that we covered extensively on Mini News and on um, Asia Pacific Currents as well. We'll post you some of those historic stories of what Unilever has done to give you a sense of um, what a giant, dirty, an anti-union and anti-worker company they actually are.
Speaking of massive, dirty anti-union companies, Samsung Electronics claims another victim. This week, Yi Hee-yung, a 41-year-old former Samsung employee, died from the effects of systemic um, sclerosis and auto an autoimmune disorder that damages a body's organs. Yi worked in the chip-making department, and over the years she was exposed to a variety of chemicals, including nitrous oxide, arsenic, phosphine, oxypochlamine, benzene, and xylene. Yi is the 118th documented case of an ex-Samsung electronics worker that's been killed due to occupational diseases. Samsung Electronics is a brutal anti-union company. On the 7th of October, (coughs) so that's today, um, OHS activists will mark two years of a sit-in protest in in front of Samsung headquarters in Seoul. And moving now to India, electronic workers demand living wages. Last month, about 5,000 workers from Orissa's power distribution companies protested in the state's capital, Bhubaneswar. They were demanding that their monthly wages be increased from the current 4,000 rupees to 18,000 rupees. So we're looking at about 61 US dollars to 275 US dollars, as well as permanent jobs for outsourced workers. Workers have had long-standing grievances with companies over unsafe working conditions that puts workers' lives at risk. Many workers die every year as the companies do not supply adequate safety gear. The workers also see what electrical workers around the world earn and so want to be remunerated accordingly. And we did see a very similar uh, method of organising in Rio Tinto um, in the Grinsberg mine in West Papua where um, workers there basically asked for commensurate pay with other Rio Tinto mining workers across the world. It was a spectacularly international um, or a, a, a... dispute a battle that it was so conscious internationally so it was conscious of um other workers for the same company uh, and really that's um the kind of thinking that's required to actually take us forward and to win some of these disputes Aviation workers around the world do continue their actions. Uh, The aviation industry is one of the most globalised industries in the world. Unfortunately, aviation companies continue to enforce a global race to the bottom in their search to cut costs and increase profits. Casualisation, contracting out and temporary employment of their workforce is one of the main tactics of of companies to break the power of the workers. Fortunately, aviation workers are also linking up across the globe to take on these companies in coordinated struggles. We're um, keenly watching the situation at Toronto Airport and amongst those workers because they've actually globalised their struggle. And of course, um, the airlines industry globally is a part of the work that AAWL is doing to build a global picket line. So we'll link some of those disputes to our website if you're interested in following what's happening across the world in uh, in airports and in the airline industry. Again in Australia and more on Australia's brutal refugee policies which continue to claim victims. The brutality of Australia's anti-refugee policies continue to kill people with two more refugees dying this week. Rajiv 
uh, Rajendran died due to inadequate medical care in an Indonesian refugee camp as she was unable to proceed further and reach Australia. Rajiv Rajendran was another Tamil refugee. He died while he was detained in Australia's concentration camp of Manus. Rajiv succumbed to years of psychological deprivation caused by his imprisonment and he killed himself. In the meantime, a new protest among the detainees in Manus Island has passed two months in duration. Migrant workers are being charged with defamation. This week, 14 migrant workers pleaded not guilty to charges of defamation brought by the Tamakaset chicken farm where they'd been working. The crime of these Burmese workers was to have complained to the National Human Rights Commission over their terrible conditions they were employed under. This case is related to the ongoing criminal cases against Labor researcher Andy Hall, who had to flee Thailand to avoid arrest. Sorry, I didn't mention at the start of this um, uh, story that these migrant workers are from Burma and they are located, so they're working in Thailand um, at, at the moment and Thailand is particularly repressive and regressive against migrant workers. And many of you will recall that Andy Hall was uh, was making a documentary about child labour in fruit farms and in agriculture and um, was arrested, uh, fled the country. So, so, uh, but I do understand that the trial is still pending in relation to Andy Hall. An open letter by almost a hundred Thai civil society groups called on the Thai government to decriminalise a defamation law. In the same week, Thailand's dictator General Prayud Chan Ocha is on a visit to the US to discuss ways to increase economic and military ties between the two countries. And a veteran political activist has been jailed again in Malaysia, and this is Comrade Chen Shua. On Friday the 29th of September, opposition politician and long-time human rights activist Chen Chua withdrew his appeal before the Court of Appeal and was given a jail sentence of 30 days. Tian was arrested in 2012 for entering a restricted area after the Bersay 3 demonstrations. Tian's decision not to proceed with his court case anymore was as a mark of protest of his treatment and unjust criminal justice system of Malaysia. In court, Chan reiterated his beliefs about the continuing biased and corrupt legal and political system in Malaysia and how change is inevitable. Amnesty International has called for Tian's release and condemns his imprisonment as part of a pattern of repression against outspoken but peaceful critics of the government in Malaysia. And Australia Asia Workerlings has definitely campaigned for Tian Chua's release many, many times. He's been arrested many times. He's served significant periods of time in prison uh, under Malaysia's repressive laws, um, quelling or attempting to stop dissent in that country. That's the news from around the region. It's 12 minutes past nine o'clock here on Community Radio 3CR. You're listening to Asia Pacific Currents. I'm going to go to some community announcements um, and then we'll return with our interview with Rahi, uh, with, excuse me, Mahi Ramakrishnan. I often feel the only thing standing between us falling off that precipice and actually fighting our way back up the top of the hill is the trade union movement. I really believe that. We have the numbers, we have the commitment, we have the heart, we have the will to really fight. And the only way we're going to win that fight is to grow the union movement. That was Jed Carney talking up union. 
Stay tuned to 3CR for more union news. 8.55 on your AM dial or 3cr.org.au. This is James Henry here and you're listening to 3CR, 8.55am and digital streaming on 3cr.org.au. Since August this year, about 500,000 Rohingya have been displaced from Rakhine State uh, in Burma. They've mostly moved into Bangladesh, but other neighbouring countries such as Thailand, Malaysia, India as well. Of course, most of us will be looking at the Rohingya crisis and calling it genocide, but that's not an accepted opinion across the world. Uh, Mahi Ramakrishnan is a um, progressive filmmaker and documentary maker. She's made three documentaries about the Rohingya crisis, and I had an opportunity to speak with her last week about the particular, about some of the issues informing the Rohingya crisis. Actually, a lot of people tend to look at this conflict as a religious conflict, Buddhists against the Muslims. And now currently there's been this issue of uh, pitting the Hindus against the Muslims. But if you really go deeper and do some investigation, you'll find out that Arakan in itself is a place, a state which is uh, rich with natural resources. Like other parts of Burma are rich with gemstones, for example. Arakan is a great place for fishing, has got gas. And recently, um, it is, uh, in 2014, if I'm not mistaken, the military found out that the beaches of Mongdo has got a black soil, which is rich with titanium and aluminium. So what is essentially happening in Burma is genocide against the Rohingya because the military wants to make sure that the entire population of the Rohingya are chased out of the state in whichever manner possible so that it has full um, full and unrestricted access to the natural resources and also the land. If you look at uh, Burma's history, you'll know that there are hundreds of thousands of land grab cases in Burma, amounting to three to five million acres of land which has been grabbed. And uh, this is sold to investors and investors are given even government loans while the smallholders get nothing. So this is a history of persecution to make sure that the military stays in control of logistics of resources and that it, it stays rich and powerful. It's not a surprise that the basis of the conflict lies in uh, capitalism or some kind of profit grab by the government, by the military, by those with inter- interests in those profits. But you are right at the same time that this debate is being cast as either a religious or a cultural debate, that the um, Rohingya are being persecuted because of their Islamic religion, because of their different ethnicity or arguably different ethnicity from the rest of Burma. How is that idea maintained given that Burmese is so, Burma sorry, is so multicultural? See, if you really look at, uh, I mean, now we are all so focused on the Rohingya issue, but the history of persecution is more than three decades old. And it's not just the Rohingya 
who have been persecuted. The Rohingya, there is a small group of Hindu Rohingya who have also been persecuted. And the Kachin, the Chin, the Karen. I was in Burma in 2013 and I heard lots of stories about how the military will be driving past a Kachin village only to see a very pretty girl. It'll, the military will stop its, uh, will stop and will just grab the woman and she's lost forever. She just completely disappears. So this kind of persecution has been going on. And in Burma, even the majority Bamars are poor and discriminated upon. It's not just the Rohingya. In Rakhine state itself, the Rakhine Buddhists remain poor. Arakan is the poorest state in Burma with 78% poverty rate. So now if we look at what's happening in Burma, we see the persecution against the Rohingya because it's so visible. But don't be surprised if after the Rohingya have been chased out of Arakan, uh, the, you will also see the military training its weapons against the Rakhine Buddhists. Now, it may not end up in a massacre or the, or the kind of slaughter that we are seeing against the Rohingya, but they will also be driven out of the state because, like I said, the, all the government, all, sorry, all that the military is concerned about is the control of the natural resources. So Burma's military has systematically persecuted against all its ethnic groups for more than three decades now. The only people who are rich, who are powerful, and who remain safe are the military, the ruling elite, uh, the rich people, and those who are cronies of these people. Well, I want to let's look at the the persecution of Burmese more broadly because we know that there are many Burmese refugees that end up in Malaysia, particularly. I mean, they cross border. They many end up in Bangladesh, in in other in Thailand, in other parts of Southeast Asia. And I want to talk about Malaysia particularly because I know this issue much better. And in, I mean, many of them are refugees, but many of them are also economic migrants, people that are crossing into Malaysia in order to work. So illegal immigrants or undocumented workers. And periodically, the Malaysian government conducts a sweep, rounds up all of the, or as many as have been reported, uh, undocumented workers and deports them back to Burma. It's a method to drive wages down, um, not just Burmese people or uh, undocumented workers' wages, but Malaysian wages altogether. So do do you see those economic dynamics playing out in um in the industries across Southeast Asia as well as in Burma? See, if you're really, if you're asking me about what's actually happening to Malaysia, Malaysia has not ratified the convention, which means that it does not recognize the rights of uh, the Rohingya and or any other refugee for that matter. And you are right, they are lumped together with uh, migrant workers. So when there is a sweep uh, to a sweep against undocumented workers in Malaysia, inevitably the refugee community also get arrested and detained as well. Those who are safe are those who have the UNHCR cards. Uh, But now you see a, a slight shift in Malaysia's policy where the government has come out openly to not just condemn Burma, but also to welcome the Rohingya, they have said that if the Rohingya turn up in their shores, then they will not be sent back. So that is a progress. And the government has also said that while it is not ready to ratify the UN convention, the refugee convention, it is ready to register all refugees. So this we see as a shift, as a way forward. It's definitely a shift and it's very welcome. But you are right. Uh, 
the thing is, it does not solve the problem with the undocumented workers in Malaysia. But those who come in as economic migrants from Burma are not the Rohingya. They are the Bamars and they end up working at, in massage parlors, in nail parlors, for example. So they come in as documented workers, most of them. And those who end up as undocumented workers end up in factories because of issues such as trafficking, which is involved. But that's a totally... Um, it's a it's a totally different thing. Well, I want to go back to the Rohingya, and I do take on board what, um, on board what you're saying that today it's the Rohingya being persecuted. But uh, you, you know, if the Burmese military succeeds in sweeping them out of the country entirely, there is a new target of that um, military aggression. However. Today they are being targeted, and it is it does make headlines. So we must talk about it. Uh, and you, as a, a documentary filmmaker, you managed to get into some of the refugee camps in order to make the documentaries and to get beneath the stories. How difficult was it to actually get into the camps? It took me almost a year to get the permission because. Um I do know that some uh, journalists and, and filmmakers have actually tried and have entered the camps without uh, proper permission, but it is extremely uh, dangerous and it will also um, kind of like not give you the kind of access that you want when you want to film and you want to talk to as many people as possible. So it actually took me close to a year and I had to use a contact in Yangon to lobby for a permission and finally I got it and that's how I ended up going up to Arakan and they allowed me to visit the uh, the internally displaced people's camps for three days. Uh, what I saw there was uh, was terrible because there was a, a stark contrast be- between the IDP camps built for the Rohingya as opposed to the ones built for the Rakhine Buddhists. Now, the Rakhine Buddhist ones were, were better structured. They were built on stilts. There was even a school there. But and there was enough uh, facilities, running water, you can get access to water as well. But um, the ones built for the Rohingya were appalling. There were not enough toilets for thousands and thousands of the, the Rohingyas in the IDP camps. There was no running water, so there was lots of disease. There was not enough food, even though World Food Program was operating out of uh, the uh, of, uh, out of Arakan they weren't able to actually supply enough for the people because of rampant corruption involving state ministers and middlemen. So it was a terrible condition. And, you know, there was a popular uh, notion going around at that time in 2013 where people said that if you really notice, you will know that the IDP camps for the Rohingya were built close to the Bay of Bengal because the Burmese government is just hoping that in the event there's another tsunami, then it'll wipe them all out and they don't really have to embark on another exercise to find a way to drive them out of Arakan. So on the one hand, the um, Burmese military is hoping that these people die, that is a part of the genocide exercise, but pushing them across the border, where are these people expected to go? See, the thing is that uh, these people now, the only access that they have is to Bangladesh because the sea route where they use the sea to come to Thailand and then to Malaysia is shut because of stringent monitoring following the 2015-2016 boat crisis. So it's being monitored by not just Malaysia, but also Thailand as well as Indonesia. So the easiest, the quickest way for them to escape 
the persecution, the butchering, the beheadings and the violence is to actually flee into Bangladesh. So they really have no choice. And I'm sure you have heard news about landmines on the way because it is the tactic used by the Burmese military to ensure that the Rohingya do not even think about coming back, about going back to Burma. So that is the kind of uh, genocide exercise which is being undertaken by the military regime. A lot is being made of Aung San Suu Kyi's silence on the issue, in fact, her acquiescence to what the military is doing. Are you surprised at all by her uh, non-response to the international community about the genocide? See, I, I'm one of those people who grew up uh, you know, like uh, looking at her like as if though she's a she's some kind of a a goddess like uh, you know she truly was a democracy icon um, to me and it was such it such a disappointment when she failed to stand up to the persecution the killings and the genocide against the rohingya but having seen the way she has been responding to the news about the rohingya it came as no surprise that she is continuing her stand but having said that you know, it's also very interesting about how all of us are talking about Aung San Suu Kyi and not General Min, who is the most powerful person in Burma. He is the only person who can actually stop the killings. He is the only person who can tell the military to stop shooting. And yet no one talks about him. And all of us are focused uh, on Aung San Suu Kyi. I'm not saying that what she's doing is right. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be talking about her. I'm just saying that we should also be looking at General Min, who, despite the European Union sanctions still being in place, was given a, a, an, an incredible welcome when he went to Europe last year. He had guards of honor, red carpet treatment, and was also allowed to speak. He had speaking invitations and engagements. Now, this is appalling. It is incredible that countries like Britain has said that, you know, they will stop the training, the military training. And that is incredible. But we really need more countries, more people, more advocates, more human rights people and more people in the UN to actually start talking about the general because he is the most powerful person. Aung San Suu Kyi does not have the constitutional powers to stop the persecution. But General Min has and he's not doing anything about it. That was Mahi Ramakrishnan. She is a documentary filmmaker based in Malaysia. She's been covering the Rohingya crisis for many, many years and has made three documentaries about it. You're listening to Asia Pacific Currents here on Community Radio 3CR. I'm just going to go to a community announcement and then I uh, will just announce a couple of other things and finish the show. CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. Wasting time in the unemployment lines. 
I just want to remind you about AAWL's upcoming film fundraiser. We're screening Sherpa. This is a documentary that was made by Jennifer Pedem. She's an Australian filmmaker. It explores some of the political conflicts between the mountain climbers, so the usually Western Westerners who want to climb Mount Everest, and the Sherpas, who are the people, the Nepalese people, who basically carry all of their luggage and make the um, basically summit um, Mount Everest day after day after day, but it's an achievement when Westerners do it, not when uh, the Nepalese do it. Um, And of course, uh, during the making of this documentary, there was an avalanche, a particularly horrific avalanche that killed 15 Sherpas, one of whom was the union vice president. And we did cover that story on Mini News and here on Asia Pacific Currents. So the screening of this documentary is on Monday the 16th of October at 6pm at Long Play in North Fitzroy. That's at 318 St George's Road. Tickets are $20 waged and $10 concession. All of the proceeds go to supporting AAWL's um, activities and campaigns and um, the, the our ability to continue to bring you this show as well. So that really does bring us to the end of the program. I'm Giselle Hanna. I'll be back next Saturday, uh, hopefully with Pierre, uh, bringing you more news and current affairs from the Asia-Pacific region. But stay tuned to 3CR because coming up next is Palestine Remembered. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.